that, one minute before one o'clock this morning, the switchboard at the Capitol received a phone call. A man's voice said a bomb would go off in the building in half an hour. At 1.30 in the morning, it did. In a small, unmarked restroom on the ground floor of the Senate side, next to a barber shop and near several small offices, including one committee hearing room, for a report on the first serious damage to the nation's foremost structure since the British burned it in 1814, here is ABC congressional correspondent Bob Clark. The Associated Press got a phone call from a man saying he was with the Weather Underground and that bombs would explode at the Departments of Interior and Agriculture and the Smithsonian before the day was out. Some 4,500 workers at the Interior Department were eating lunch when they were told to evacuate immediately. Most went home for the day, others stayed to watch. Police used dogs specially trained to sniff out bombs in their search of the Interior Department building, but no bomb was found. At the Smithsonian, security was increased, people were watched, but there was no evacuation. Again, tightened security, but no evacuation at the Department of Agriculture. During a search, someone found a suspicious package, but it turned out to be some old bottles of wine. David Garcia, ABC News, Washington. Hey everyone, this is Walking Through Fire and I am your host, Brian Hoops. So there's this rap group that I liked called the Digital Underground and they made this song called The Humpty Dance and their lead MC, Shock G, had a line in that song that said, my sound's laid down by the underground. Today, we're going to be talking about a different type of underground, the weather underground that is. Going forward throughout this episode, I'll be using the terms the Weathermen and Weather Underground interchangeably, but it's the same group I'm referring to, and I'll get into that reasoning later in the episode. The Weathermen were classified as a domestic terrorist group by the FBI that operated from 1969 until around 1985 when all associated members had been arrested. The Weathermen were spawned out of the 1960s counterculture movement and more specifically out of the civil rights movement. During their peak days of operations, the Weathermen carried out bombings, public disruptions, which they referred to as jailbreaks, and to a lesser extent, armed robberies. Many contemporaries that speak about the Weathermen will say they were just a group of anti-Vietnam War students that bombed empty buildings in order to protest the war. But when I dug into their deeper motives, it turned a bit disturbing. The Weathermen were looking to completely overthrow the U.S. government, which they viewed as inherently oppressive and racist, and that there was no way for American society to reform or redeem itself. Now this might sound ridiculous, and it is in retrospect. People who cover the Weathermen describe them as this harmless band of Robin Hoods that stood up to the U.S. government. More right-wing leaning pundits would describe them as an underestimated menace that should be taken seriously as an example of far-left terrorism. As always, there is an in-between that I will be focusing on throughout this episode and try to cover all angles. The main people who formed, shaped, and led the Weathermen were Kathy Boudin, Linda Sue Evans, Brian Flanagan, David Gilbert, Teddy Gold, Naomi Joff, Jeff Jones, Joe Kelly, Diana Oten, Eleanor Raskin, Terry Robbins, Mark Rudd, Matthew Steen, Susan Stern, Laura Whitehearn, Eric Mann, Kathy Wilkerson, and their two most prominent members, Bernadine Dorn and Bill Ayers. The Weathermen were most active in their early years from 1969 until around 1973 and lost popular coverage in the media as the Vietnam War ended, but members still stayed underground. 
I mentioned this in the Patty Hearst episode, but would like to shed light more on the idea of going underground because this was mainly the sort of thing that really couldn't happen today. Going underground in the 60s, 70s radical scene was kind of similar to the urban version of the militia movement that is more prevalent on the conservative to far right-wing movements in rural areas that were popular during the 80s and are still around to this day. When one went underground, it involved cutting off all contact from your family and close loved ones and changing your complete identity in order to circumvent law enforcement because you're doing illegal shit like plotting to overthrow the government and build bombs. As mentioned in the Patty Hearst episode, there were quite a few groups and individuals that lived that lifestyle. Groups like the Black Liberation Army, the FALN, and the Weathermen were some of the biggest names that were in the U.S. radicalist movement. I mentioned this earlier, but the story of the Weathermen and their origins came less out of the anti-war movement of the 60s and 70s and more out of the civil rights movement, which started earlier but was still ongoing. The civil rights movement in the United States had been an ongoing effort even before the Civil War in the 1800s, but became a more mainstream topic during the Reconstruction era of the 1860s. The more contemporary movements that we know of, those involving Dr. Martin Luther King and Malcolm X, started in the mid to late 50s and looked to attract a younger, diverse crowd, particularly college students. This brought the popularization of organizing groups such as the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, or SNCC, which invited white Northern college students to the South to protest Jim Crow laws and be a part of the general civil rights movement. SNCC attracted later weathermen such as Mark Rudd. The main group pinnacle to the formation of the weathermen was students for a Democratic Society, or SDS. SDS was disbanded in the early 70s, but restarted in 2006. There really aren't any ties of the current SDS to its predecessor. SDS became really active around 1963, with a membership of around 1,000 members. The organization backed the civil rights movement, including participating in events such as the Freedom Rides in the South. SDS was formed by a man named Tom Hayden, who acted as the intermediary that bridged the old left with the new left form in the late 60s and still has contemporary presence in American politics. Hayden initially formed SDS as a student offshoot to blue-collar labor unions, which had organized into the Progressive Labor Party. SDS focused more on the civil rights aspect of left-wing politics, whereas the PLP focused on more of workers' rights and fair labor laws. SDS and the PLP were more left-to-center or moderate, but would eventually push further to radicalist left ideologies as the Weathermen formed. SDS is what brought together the core members of the Weathermen. All were members of their respective universities' chapters. All the core members had gained reputations for partaking in various sit-ins, demonstrations, and other various protests. For example, Mark Rudd led sit-ins and building occupations while a student at Columbia University, and because of these exploits, that eventually led to his expulsion from the university. The main formation of the Weathermen came around the mid-60s. At the time, the U.S. was escalating their involvement in the Vietnam War, and the members of SDS believed there was little progress being made in the civil rights movement. The core members became slowly radicalized with communist ideologies that were primarily influenced by armed struggles throughout the world. 
In South America and Cuba, you had figures such as Fidel Castro and Che Guevara both overcame the odds to overthrow the Cuban Batista-led government and establish Cuba as a communist nation. The actions of Guevara in particular resonated with American revolutionaries because he was young and charismatic and also viewed as a romanticized revolutionary who not only overthrew a government but also successfully defended it when the U.S.-backed Bay of Pigs invasion failed. These figures had profound effects in influencing the weathermen. Bill Ayers in particular viewed himself as an American version of Che Guevara. The future weathermen took it upon themselves to begin reaching out internationally to their communist influencers. Bernadine Dorn, between 1967 and 1968, visited Budapest, Hungary, which was then a puppet state of the Soviet Union. There she met with delegates of the Northern Vietnamese Liberation Front that represented the NVA in Viet Cong in their war effort against the United States. While that was going on with Dorn, Mark Rudd, Teddy Gold, and other weathermen partook in the Venceremos Brigade. I think I mentioned the Venceremos in the Patty Hearst episode, but for those who may not recall or didn't listen to it, it was a program established in Cuba after Castro seized power. The goal of the brigade was to invite American college students to work in Cuba and partake in communist lectures from Cuban government officials. On paper, it sounds like this kind of whimsical, communist, uh, utopian experience, but from what I could find from past participants, it seemed that the Cubans were more exploiting free agricultural labor from naive American college students. Linda Evans and Kathy Boudin, as well as other future members of the Weathermen, visited North Vietnam. While there, they were given a tour of a POW camp that housed American GIs, which is a callback to the last episode covering Robert Garwood. Now, I could not find a direct connection between the Weathermen and Garwood, but based on the timing and location, it seems like the members of the Weathermen and Garwood may have come close to crossing paths or at least brush shoulders. By late 1967 through early 1968, Bernadine Dorn and the weather members began drawing a line in the sand against the core SDS leadership. There's a few different reasons for this. Bernadine Dorn was vocally expressing interest in becoming president of SDS and the need to shift the organization to more violent actions. The radicalization of elements of SDS, as mentioned before, was in part due to what they saw as slow progress on the behalf of the American government to pass more civil rights legislation to benefit minority communities, specifically the African American community. This was amplified by the ramp up of the Vietnam War and specifically because of the draft laws which unfairly conscripted lower class communities comprised mostly of minorities and African Americans. The draft laws of the U.S. during Vietnam stipulated that certain people were exempt from the draft, most notably young men who were enrolled in college or university, which at that time was primarily middle and upper class white men. The people who would end up forming the Weathermen would look at this as an imperialistic move by the U.S. government to send poor Americans to Vietnam to kill poor Vietnamese in a ruse to support the capitalist U.S. government, which I won't completely disagree with in certain aspects, but the way Weather explains it is a bit batshit crazy. 
Towards the end of the 60s is when anti-war protests began to turn increasingly violent. Anti-war and future radicalist groups would adopt a motto called Bring the War Home, which was coined by future weatherman John Jacobs. When radicalist groups would hold protests, they would make it a point to display the North Vietnamese flag and chant slogans such as Ho 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 Chi Minh, the NVA, they will win, and also express glee when American troops were killed by the Viet Cong. The overall movement was beginning to openly discuss violent action against the U.S. government and against agents slash organizations who they believe represented American interests. Bernadine Dorn's race to become president of SDS was challenged by fellow SDS member Mike Klonsky. One of the first steps in Dorn's rise to power was taking control of SDS's national newspaper, The New Left Notes, which was able to feed their audience with a steady stream of fringe left-wing politics. Klonsky eventually folded and sort of sided with Dorn and the Weathermen, forming what he called the Revolutionary Youth Movement, RYM, which was radical in ideas but believed in nonviolent resistance. In June 1969, the first major fractioning of SDS occurred. SDS was holding their national convention in Chicago, which hosted local members and leaders of the Black Panther Party, as well as members of the PLP. This next part is going to be a little agitating to explain, so I'll try to put this in the most general terms as I possibly can. I mentioned this in the Patty Hearst episode, but there are different subcultures and views on the principles and outlooks of communism. The PLP had communist and socialist believers within their ranks that aligned with the Leninist Trotskyist line of communism. In this belief, the proletariat or the common people were defined as blue-collar workers, so your farmhands, factory workers, you know, what have you. And the belief is that they should control the means of production and wealth should be distributed in accordance to their beliefs. SDS, RYM, and some Black Panther members believed in Maoist communism and showed support for the Great Leap Forward, which is definitely a topic I will cover one day. In Maoist communism, the proletariat is defined by all people, not just workers. Specifically, the lower class should be determining the distribution of wealth within a society. That is the most generalized version and was honestly one of the most painstaking parts of the research that I did for this episode. So, at this conference, SDS and RYM members demanded that the PLP change their line of thought and urged members to jump ship and come to their side. PLP told SDS to fuck off, and this bursted into a heated shouting match between the PLP and SDS, where SDS members accused the PLP of being inherently racist and against the cause. This was basically what a Twitter argument looks like in real life. Picture an auditorium of snobbish, privileged, young white kids yelling and shouting and accusing each other of being racist and not communist enough. SDS members held a vote and ultimately ousted all PLP members from any future events and organizing and all PLP members left the conference. After PLP exited the conference, SDS splintered as well. The RYM consolidated power with SDS members and RYM was formed into two groups, RYM1 and RYM2. RYM1 would be headed by Bernadine Dorn, Bill Ayers, Jeff Jones, and other future weathermen, whereas RYM2 would be headed by the nonviolent Mike Klonsky. 
Klonsky released RYM2's manifesto at the conference detailing RYM's mission. It was a failed mission, though, as RYM2 disintegrated shortly after the June 1969 convention. RYM1 released their manifesto at the same time, written by Jeff Jones, entitled You Don't Need a Weatherman to Know Which Way the Wind Blows, which are lyrics from the Bob Dylan song Subterranean Homesick Blues. The lyrics would be where the initial name Weatherman came from. The manifesto Jones printed hailed the actions of the North Vietnamese and various communist groups in South America, describing that the United States needed a vanguard to directly combat the American government. The early Weathermen stated in the manifesto the need to recruit and fill their ranks with the poor white population. The SDS conference wrapped up towards the end of June 1969, and SDS itself was basically non-existent at this point. The contingent of RYM-1, now going by the Weathermen, remained in Chicago to run their national printing press and maintain one of the former SDS main offices. At the end of July 1969, Mark Rudd, Bernadine Dorn, and other weathermen traveled to Cuba one last time to meet with NBA and Cuban revolutionaries to disclose the weathermen's intention to carry out what they called urban guerrilla warfare against the United States. They also wanted to get any pointers from the NBA and Cuban representatives. The exact conversations in these meetings are pretty contested. The FBI would say that the North Vietnamese and Cubans had funded the Weathermen to carry out their operations. Other researchers would state that the Weathermen presented their plan to their revolutionary counterparts and the Cubans and the NVA were basically like, that's good, that's good, it won't work, but you know, great, uh, great ambition that you guys have. After their final meeting in Cuba, the Weathermen established a leadership council that was called the Weather Bureau. The core leadership that remained in that position would be Bill Ayers, Bernadine Dorn, and Jeff Jones, but they would sort of rotate various members in and out of the Bureau. The Weathermen adopted two main strategies in launching their war against the U.S. The first was to directly confront and fight police and government officials. The second strategy was to establish cells called tribes throughout the U.S. and build an underground network of weathermen that would rotate members in between cells and carry out violent actions against the establishment. The weathermen began establishing these tribes in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Buffalo, New York, Minneapolis, Minnesota, Green Bay, Wisconsin, Cincinnati, Ohio, and maintained a strong presence in Chicago as well as in New York City. Leaders of the Weather Bureau were assigned to manage a different tribe and were responsible for recruiting and vetting potential weather members. This was phase one of the weathermen's plan of going underground. Weather members could still move freely in public, but while they were in safe houses and apartments, they were keying up potential recruits, revealing to them their ultimate plan of fighting the U.S. government. It was sort of a hype-up phase to get recruits ready for life on the run. Conditions were generally squalor, where some safe houses were one-bedroom apartments with like eight people living in it. Like the SLA, it was common for weather members to share one toothbrush and had a shitty diet, living mostly on beans and rice. When recruits were allowed to live or hang around weather safe houses, it was understood that any romantic relationships between members or potential members had to be purged. This concept was referred to as smash monogamy. The idea of smash monogamy was conceived by Bernadine Dorn, who at the time was dating fellow weatherman Jeff Jones. 
However, Smash Monogamy did not apply to Dorn and Jones, and it also didn't apply to Bill Ayers, who continued to be in a monogamous relationship with fellow weatherman Diana Oten. As with the SLA, the weathermen believed that sex should not be viewed as an intimate act, but more as an essential need like food or water. This in turn led to massive orgies within the weathermen. It is atrocious how some mainstream pundits have covered this aspect of the weathermen because they bill it as this peaceful, groovy, free love spirit of the 1960s. However, the main concept of smash monogamy benefited the male leadership of weather more than it did the women. To this day, numerous women who were affiliated with the Weathermen accuse Bill Ayers, Jeff Jones, and other leadership of intentionally transferring female members that they wanted to fuck to different tribes across the country. Another thing that arose from the smash monogamy and the Weathermen that mainstream media doesn't cover is the STDs. In the late 60s, early 70s, using condoms wasn't really a thing, so needless to say, gonorrhea, chlamydia, and crabs were rampant among the Weathermen. Now you might be wondering where the title of this episode comes from. Weatherman Mark Rudd in numerous interviews recalled that within this time a special type of the clap arose within Weatherman circles and it was actually nicknamed the Weather Crud or the Weatherman Crud. Down the line, the smash monogamy concept was ultimately scrubbed, but that was only after Mark Rudd noticed the chick he was fucking had developed a nasty case of crabs in her eye. While all this was going on, the Weathermen began plotting their first physical direct action. Weatherman John Jacobs believed that the Weathermen should take the police on directly in a massive fight. The Weathermen planned for a four-day event, which would be known as the Days of Rage. The idea was to go to the Gold Coast neighborhood in Chicago, which was extremely wealthy, and smash up stores and banks. Their directive was that if cops intervened, the Weathermen would fight them back. The Days of Rage were set to take place in early October of 1969. On October 6, 1969 is when this is believed to be the first Weatherman bombing. The target was a statue in Chicago that commemorated a fallen police officer that died during the 1886 Haymarket riots. The actual Days of Rage were to last between October 8th to October 11th, 1969. The original idea was to hold demonstrations in Chicago's Lincoln Park. Weatherman leadership estimated that about 3,000 weathermen and supporters would show up, but by day one, it had only been about 800. Throughout the following days, Weatherman members like Bill Ayers, John Jacobs, Jeff Jones, and Brian Flanagan held speeches that attempted to rile up the attendees of the Days of Rage. They announced that the planned action would occur on October 11th and everyone would rally in Lincoln Park throughout the afternoon. This was the last day of the Days of Rage, and throughout the afternoon, only about 300 Weathermen were present. The Chicago police, on the other hand, had about 2,000 officers present. The reason why there were so many Chicago police outnumbering the Weathermen was because prior to the Days of Rage, the Weathermen were putting up flyers letting everyone know around town what they were exactly they were going to do. This was fucking stupid because the Chicago PD were tipped off and planned to have every officer available. Meanwhile, in Lincoln Park, with the 200 or so Weathermen present, the energy changed amongst weather leaders Bill Ayers and Mark Rudd. They were visibly nervous as they knew they were vastly outnumbered by the Chicago Police Department. They knew if they backed down, though, then they would be considered weak. So the Weathermen rallied their supporters and began to march the Gold Coast neighborhood, smashing storefronts and car windows in the process. 
Residents of the Chicago neighborhood in their apartments above the streets shouted profanities at the weathermen below, and one resident dropped a giant ceramic ashtray on one of the weathermen, which nearly knocked him out. As the weathermen clashed with Chicago police, the motivation of the protesters to fight the cops dwindled, and in the end, about 280 weathermen were arrested. For the hardcore followers of the weathermen, this reinforced the need to go underground and avoid another Days of Rage incident. For the rank-and-file weather participants, this was a sign for them to exit the movement. Ayers, Dorn, Jeff Jones, Mark Rudd, and other way main weather organizers were hit with various charges for the Days of Rage, but did not show up to court, which put warrants out for their arrests. Local Chicago papers covered the Days of Rage in a confused manner. They didn't quite know what to make of it. The Days of Rage were widely condemned by the Black Panther Party, who the weathermen were desperately trying to gain some credibility with. Black Panther leader Fred Hampton was quoted saying the following about the Days of Rage. We believe that the weatherman action is anarchistic, opportunistic, individualistic, it's chauvinistic, it's custeristic, and that's the bad part about it. It's custeristic in that its leaders take people into situations where the people can be massacred, and they call that a revolution. It's nothing but child's play. It's folly. We think these people may be sincere, but they're misguided. They're muddleheads, and they're scatterbrains. The Weathermen had an odd relationship with black civil rights leaders and groups like the Black Panthers. Seems like the Weathermen tried shoehorning or inserting themselves into these struggles and making it about themselves. Seems like other groups were like, who the fuck are these white kids speaking up for me? To me it sounded like groups like the Black Panthers were kind of like, you guys can sit at the table with us, but shut the fuck up and do what we say. I think it goes without saying that groups like the Black Panthers were beginning to really really start distancing themselves from the weathermen. The weathermen continued their recruiting and vetting activities in their designated tribe cities, but that too was proving to be a difficult sell for potential recruits for the weathermen. I believe I mentioned this earlier, but the weathermen were hoping to recruit more poor and working class white people, which they referred to as greasers, in mid to larger cities because they believed if they could radicalize working class white youth, it'd be easier to make the movement more palatable to the mild mannered Midwest audiences. In one story, Mark Rudd, who was running the Minneapolis tribe, tried going to a working class bar to look for some prospects. He approached a group of what he described as tough looking dudes and started talking to them. Rudd thought he would fit in, but the guys quickly saw past his bullshit and realized he was some spoiled rich kid trying to play revolutionary. Rudd slipped and called the guys greasers, which in turn they promptly kicked his ass and chased him out of the bar. Bill Ayers in the meantime had convinced his brother Rick, who was in the army, to go AWOL and join the weathermen. Ayers ran the Cincinnati tribe and was eventually going to cross paths with later FBI informant Larry Grathwall, whose story I'll touch on a little bit later. One of the goofier ways weathermen tried recruiting the youth was this thing they did called high school jailbreaks. The idea would be that women of the weathermen would go to various high schools and community colleges, disrupt in-session classes and tell students they were being taught lies and to rebel against the establishment. The weatherwomen would flash their tits and bush in order to get the attention of male students. The most notable incident was in the Detroit area in late 1969. 
Nine weather women forced a professor out of his classroom, barricaded themselves in the room with about 50 students, and began shouting lectures about the evils of American imperialism. It's ironic they call these jailbreaks and that they are barricading people in a room against their will and forcing them to listen to their propaganda like a bunch of Korean War POWs. The cops were called and the nine weather women eventually left the room. Rather than turning themselves over to the police, the weather women tried to fight the cops with karate but were immediately beaten and then arrested. Meanwhile, the Chicago tribe, which included Bernadine Dorn, were having a relatively hard time. The group operated out of SDS's old print office, and one of the weathermen there called this period living in Chicago as the scariest moment of his life. They were all a bunch of upper-class white kids working in an office in a predominantly poor black neighborhood. A local gang would constantly break into their office during work hours and steal purses and rob weathermen of their wallets. They tried patching up their relationship with local Black Panthers, but that was beyond repair. Some of the members of the local Black Panther office were accused of breaking into the weatherman's office and stealing office supplies, typewriters, and their printing press. When Bernadine Dorn and other weathermen went to the Black Panther office to ask for their shit back, one of the Black Panther's Spartan kicked Bernadine Dorn in the chest, causing her to fall down a large flight of stairs. Eventually, the Chicago tribe would take the remaining SDS files to SDS's national headquarters, which I believe was in Ann Arbor, Michigan at the time, and they would close the doors to the Chicago office permanently. By late November 1969, Weather began planning a nationwide event in Flint, Michigan called the Flint War Council that would take place around December 27th. On December 4th of that year, Fred Hampton, leader of the Black Panthers, would be killed by Chicago police, and this was a sign for the weathermen to lean into their plans on going underground. While at the Flint War Council, the weathermen decided which of their recruits would be invited to go underground with them. If you were tapped on the shoulder at the War Council, then that was the signal. The Flint War Council was held at a dance hall in a very crime-ridden area of Flint, Michigan. Mark Rudd recalled that the front door of the dance hall still had bullet holes in it from a shooting that killed someone a few nights before. The stage was decorated with a giant paper mache AK-47, and the walls were covered with portraits of Mao Zedong, Che Guevara, Ho Chi Minh, and many other communist revolutionaries the weathermen would bone up for. The Flint War Council also acted as a last-ditch effort to recruit white working-class youth. The event was somewhat open to the public, but they were basically a series of speeches and lectures about tips on going underground, like how to forge IDs and how to set up communication networks to building bombs and procuring supplies such as food. The War Council had various activities, but each day started with an hour-long karate session and different physical training exercises. The speeches were also used to share communist revolutionary ideology, how they would overthrow the U.S. government, and how in the aftermath these various revolutionary groups would allow North Vietnam, China, and the Soviet Union to colonize the United States. They also discussed how in the aftermath of their revolution, they would need to exterminate all whites in the United States who did not partake in the revolution. Here are some excerpts of how these speeches went as they were reported by an underground newspaper. Here's an excerpt from the newspaper called SDS Weatherman War Council titled The Year of the Fork. The strongest debate centered on the question of who is going to make the American Revolution. The logic of that view was expressed in a statement by Ted Gold, a top weatherman, who said that an agency of the people of the world would be set up to run the U.S. economy and society after the defeat of the U.S. imperialism abroad. 
A critic spoke up. In short, if the people of the world succeed in liberating themselves before American radicals have made the American Revolution, then the Vietnamese and Africans and the Chinese are going to move in and run things for white America. It sounds like a John Bircher's worst dream. There will have to be more repression than ever against white people, but by refusing to organize, Weatherman isn't even giving them half a chance. Well, replied Gold, if it will take fascism, we'll have to have fascism. The article goes on. Bob Avakian from the Bay Area Revolutionary Union argued that not only do white workers need those things such as food for their survival, but that black people need them and want them too. If you can't understand that white workers are being screwed too, that they are oppressed by capitalism before they are racist, then that just shows your class origins, said Avakian. Howie Mockdinger of the Weathermen shot back, When you try to defend honky workers who just want more privilege from imperialism, that shows your race origins. The Weatherman position boiled down to inevitable race war in America, with very few, quote, honkies, except perhaps the 400 people in the room, and the few street kids or gang members who might run with them, surviving the Holocaust. The article continues by some of the speeches that Weatherman leader Bernadine Dorn uh, spoke to. She said, quote, Honkies are going to be afraid of us, Dorn insisted. She went on to tell the War Council about Charles Manson, the accused leader of the Tate Eight who allegedly murdered the movie star and several others on their Beverly Hills estate. Manson has been portrayed in the media as a satanic magnetic personality who held near hypnotic sway over several women whom he lent out to friends as favors and brought along for the murder scene. The press also mentioned Manson's supposed fear of blacks he reportedly moved into rural California to escape the violence of a race war. Weatherman, the Bureau says, digs Manson, not only for his understanding of white America, the killer reportedly wrote pig in blood on the wall after the murder, but also because he's a bad motherfucker. Dig it. First they killed those pigs, then they ate dinner in the same room with them, then they even shoved a fork into the victim's stomach. Wild, said Bernadine Dorn. That was just an excerpt of some of the events that took place at the Flint War Council. Bernadine Dorn, also at the War Council, held four fingers in the air and called this the Fork Salute and declared 1970 would be the year of the fork. Also in attendance at the Flint War Council was Tom Hayden, the original founder of the Students for a Democratic Society. He was there with his wife Sandra, who was about six months pregnant at the time. Bernadine Dorn approached Sandra Hayden and asked her if she was going to keep her baby. Sandra was confused by the question and told Dorn that she had planned the pregnancy and she intended to keep the child and raise it. Dorn scoffed at Sandra and asked if the father was black or white. Sandra was baffled at the line of questioning and told Dorn that the father was her husband Tom, who Dorn obviously knew was white. Dorn looked Sandra dead in the eye and told her, You might as well throw your baby in the trash. That's where white babies belong, in the garbage. The Flint War Council concluded and the main leaders of the Weather Bureau would split up into their designated tribes across the United States while frequently meeting up to discuss direct actions. The first underground action of the Weathermen was carried out by their New York City tribe around February 1970. The initial goals of the Weathermen was to incite violence on individuals. The initial target was New York Judge John M. Murtaugh, who was at the time the judge overseeing the Panther 21 case. 
To give a brief overview, the Panther 21 case is when a group of 21 offshoot members of the New York City chapter of the Black Panthers planned to carry out a coordinated attack on multiple police stations in New York City. One of the former members of the Black Panthers had flipped into an informant and in detail told the NYPD about the attacks. In fact, the informant was so involved that he even helped build a decoy bomb that was placed on the sides of one of the NYPD precincts in Manhattan. Other members of the conspiracy were arrested on rooftops outside of other NYPD police stations with scoped rifles and hundreds of rounds of ammunition. After a lengthy trial, all members of the Panther 21 case eventually had their charges dropped, but the weathermen looked at this case as an opportunity to make their splash in the headlines. Judge Murtaugh knew this was a big case and preemptively had on and off-duty NYPD officers guard his home and family on a 24-hour basis. On the morning of February 21st, 1970, three Molotov cocktails were thrown into the front yard of Murtaugh's house. After the fire was put out, firefighters noticed that there was a message that was painted on the sidewalk that read, Free the Panther 21. The odd thing about this is that the weathermen didn't take credit for this action until December of 1970, which was about 10 months after this occurred. Typically, their MO was to put out some sort of communique or some kind of message either right before or right after a direct action took place. The action on Judge Murtaugh's house was child's play compared to the next move by the Weathermen. Their New York City tribe, consisting of Ted Gold, Terry Robbins, Diana Uten, Kathy Wilkerson, and Kathy Boudin, hatched a plot to bomb a non-commissioned officer dance at Fort Dix, New Jersey. Mark Rudd and Bill Ayers took part in the overall planning, but the goal was to intentionally build an anti-personnel bomb, which was essentially a glass jar with explosives and nails in it. This would have been planted at the venue, and when set off at the peak of attendance, would have killed or injured over 300 non-commissioned officers from the United States Army and their spouses as well. However, the weathermen were extremely amateur in building complex bombs, such as the one needed to detonate at the NCO ball. Kathy Wilkerson lied to her parents while they were out of town and convinced them to let Wilkerson and the Weathermen stay at their townhouse in Greenwich Village in New York City. They, along with Diane Oten, took up work in the Wilkerson's townhouse basement and started setting up a bomb factory. Kathy Wilkerson and Kathy Boudin were on the first floor during the afternoon of March 6th. Wilkerson was ironing a shirt that Teddy Gold would wear as a disguise to sneak into the NCO dance. In the book Witnessing the Revolution, which I used for research for this episode, Kathy Wilkerson was interviewed about the experience during the Greenwich townhouse bombing. She described herself as ironing Teddy Gold's shirt, and she was so focused in on that that out of nowhere, she just felt her feet go out from underneath her, and that feeling of like free-falling, like how you're on a roller coaster and it like drops down. After the blast, she went deaf and blacked out, and when she came to, she realized she was laying in the rubble of her parents' townhouse. The bombs being built in the basement had detonated prematurely. She didn't know it at the time, but Gold, Robbins, and Uten were all dead. Nearby, Kathy Boudin was in the ruins of the townhouse. Wilkerson and Boudin collected each other, and a nearby bystander approached the women to help them. Boudin and Wilkerson rushed with the woman back to her nearby home, and she gave them clothes to change into. 
When the woman asked if Boudin and Wilkerson wanted to shower and clean their wounds until an EMT showed up, they realized that the cops would be coming as well and bolted out of the house and onto the subway to evade arrest. Uh, fun fact about the Weatherman townhouse bombing incident, the next door neighbor of the Wilkerson's was Hollywood actor Dustin Hoffman, who was living in New York City at the time. The Weatherman's townhouse bombing gave the Weathermen their first casualties, self-inflicted, but their first casualties nonetheless. This was a sobering moment that made Weatherman rethink their armed approach. Prior to the Greenwich Village townhouse explosion, Weather had all leaned into the hardline notion that they were looking to spill blood of police soldiers and anyone deemed to be supporting the capitalistic American government. However, losing three of their own while attempting to carry out such attacks took the piss out of the Weathermen. Now their tactics were to carry out what Bill Ayers refers to today as, quote, enhanced acts of vandalism. The plan would be to target structures, typically buildings at nighttime to minimize risk of human life and bomb those buildings. The idea was to attack what they saw as symbols of the oppressive American government. All in all, the weathermen would pull off between 1 to 1,000 bombings estimated, making them the most active of all these radical groups in the 1970s. 1970 and 1971 were the most active times of the weathermen. Almost every month in 1970, there was a bombing of government offices, bank buildings, and military bases throughout uh, Washington, D.C., California, Chicago, and New York City, to name a few. And with that, I'm going to conclude part one of this series. For the next part of The Weathermen, I'm going to go more into their downfall, life underground, and the current state. Uh, kind of where are they now? Because uh, a lot of the members of The Weathermen are still around and still doing some uh, news appearances. So we'll we'll get more into that. Thanks, everyone, for listening. And look, look out for uh, part two that should be coming out here shortly. So thanks again.